Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host, Andy Shurek and Stacy Wedding. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Nonprofit Everything, where we are here to answer anything and everything on your mind about nonprofits. We're so glad to have you. It's uh you know, that post-holiday season craziness and and a little bit of like the lull and letdown because it's all over, but also sort of the relief that it's all over. And uh, we hope that uh, your new year is starting off with a bang. Um, Huge thanks to Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits uh, that is basically our presenting sponsor of this and helps make this podcast possible. And uh, I am fortunate to co-host this with Andy Shurek, the extraordinaire a co-host extraordinaire. So uh, glad to be here with you today. We are a statewide organization and plan to close our Vegas offices in 2019 because of fiscal constraints. One of my Southern Nevada managers accepted a check from a Southern Nevada donor recently and told me she didn't think there were any restrictions on the gift. This makes me nervous because she sounded unsure should we still deposit the gift? I don't like walking around with an uncashed check. Well, your instincts are right on. Uh, obviously, you want to get to the bottom of this quickly. It's not great to be walking around with uncashed checks. Uh, and for me, what that leads to is if you have any lack of clarity, it needs to be a conversation with the donor. Yep. And right, I, I mean, and it's just got to be real about, hey, here's what's going on with our organization, especially if it's a Southern Nevada donor and you're going to close shop or close your operations in Southern Nevada. I'm going to make an assumption, probably not fair, but that's why you need to have the conversation with the donor that probably the donor is wanting their check to go towards some of your Southern Nevada services. Right. Right. So I feel like it's, it's, you know, with any good donor stewardship, it's an opportunity for more education. It's an opportunity to build a relationship. It's not a bad thing. You're saying to the donor, want to, we want to honor your intent and we have this check and we wanted to make sure, is there anything you wanted this tied to? And I also think that even if the donors said, oh, you know, I, I don't really care, use it for whatever. I still think you have a moral obligation. If it's a Southern Nevada donor to share with them what's going on with your organization, because I think they could feel a little bit taken advantage of if they find out three months from now that you're closing shop in Southern Nevada. Yeah. Yeah. I think it opens up a sort of a, well, I've, you know, I from the CFO perspective, I looked at it a different ways. First of all, like no one should ever be walking around with an uncashed check. Well, yeah, I'm sure that makes you <laughs> like, like I, that's, yeah. that shouldn't be, you need some sort of process in place to make sure that when the check is received, that it's logged and immediately goes into the bank. But I understand that you don't want to, cause you know, the, the, the CFO in me says, just deposit the check. If you need to cut her a refund, do that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But don't, don't wander around with an uncash. It's going to make your donor annoyed too. Like they're bouncing their checkbook. If people still do that, bouncing their <laughs> checkbook and saying, you know, I thought I gave them $200. Where's that money? Um, it plus you should be thanking them for it immediately. Right. Too. Um, the, the other thing is restrictions and keeping track of what's restricted in what way it needs to be a very specific process. So, um, you can get in big trouble if you send out a piece of mail and it mentions something, um, even in passing. So say you've sent out a piece of mail and your organization, because we're talking about homelessness today, your organization talking, talks about um, feeding homeless people. 
um, you may have just accidentally restricted that program, that, that gift to a homeless feeding program, which means you can't spend it on something that doesn't fall under that category. Um, so you have to be very careful um, because your auditors will eat you alive if they think that you've restricted something by the way you're talking to your donors about it. And the donor, you know, the donor intent is super important. If the donor thought it was going for one thing and it's actually going for something else, like you're going to get a super bad audit. Mm. Well, I have a, you know, I have a follow-up question on that one. Uh, so how do you, from a CFO and kind of a finance perspective, when you see these mailers that say $25 helps us do X, Y, Z, $50, you know, provides an opportunity to do, you know, provide five blankets, whatever. You get what I'm saying. Yep. Is, would that be considered, I'm sure that's a nuanced thing, but would that be considered a restriction or is it just sort of showing what the money could do? And it, not could to, it could be. It could be. And it's about the way you, you, how clear you are. So the sad thing about this is that it really depends on your auditor. If you've got a good auditor who knows what they're doing and is actually paying attention and is serious about their job that they've been hired to do, which is to keep track of whether or not you're doing it right, they may ding you on that. They may say, you've written this in such a way to make people think that if you give us $50, you're buying blankets. And you didn't buy blankets with that $50, so I'm going to have to talk to you about that, right? Hmm. There are auditors who, you know, are nonprofits may love them because they get to do shady things and the auditors aren't going aren't gonna to ding them on it because the auditors aren't, aren't that serious about it. If you're working for an organization and you are cherishing your relationship that you have with your accountant and your auditor because they're like that, you need to rethink your priorities in life because you're, you're messing it up for everybody else. Um, the, the clear way is to just put someplace on there, you know, that this gift is unrestricted. Yeah. One of the things I like is when you see instead of, because unrestricted, you're right, donors will give to it. One, a language, language that I love that I see nonprofits use is when they say, help fund the greatest need of our organization, right? Because then that is saying unrestricted just in a, in a different way. And yeah. the greatest need could be operations and overhead. It could overhead. be sewer built in. Right, it could be, right? Good <laughs> grief. Yeah. All right, Stacy. We are working on a grant for a funder that doesn't want to pay for any salaries. Oh, surprise, surprise. <laughs> but that's a huge part of our expenses. Is there a strategy for dealing with this? Urgh. That's what I, sorry, I, I get with this because, you know, it's so typical, right? And we all hear it all the time. Sorry, funders, if you're listening. But hey, the best gift you could give is actually helping fund salaries and capacity building for organizations. But anyways, um, Sad to say, but I mean, I feel like my my gut reaction is strategy is not to expect this from grants, because if a funder outright says it, um, you probably need to diversify your funding strategy and realize grants are, generally speaking, and uh, there's no you know hard, fast rule around this, but generally speaking, grants are a little bit more tied to, okay, programmatic or capital or whatever, yeah. um, you know, so I feel like how do you diversify your funding structure and, and the way you're doing things in a different way? Um, so that, you know, whether it's a, it's God knows a special event, I don't even want those words to come out of my mouth because they're a big pain in the butt. <laughs> Did you just, wait, wait, stop. <sighs> Did you just recommend someone no, to a special no, event? No, I don't. I'm not recommending. <laughs> okay. Let's just be clear. All right. So let's find another way or, you know, sort of an annual appeal, but something, some other way you can get some of those dollars raised might be, you know, better benefit to you. But the other thing is, and I, you know, I'd love to know, I mean, Andy with some of his finance background might have some tricks around this, but I mean, I also think maybe it's a dialogue with the funder 
about what exactly they mean by salaries, right? Because a program salary for a program that has to be run may be acceptable to them versus, you know, oftentimes you see the admin or fundraising or ED salaries aren't the ones they want to fund. So perhaps there's a room for a conversation with this funder to really get some clarity around what they mean by salaries instead of sort of just thinking it means salaries in general. I mean, maybe that's not the case. So I think it might be worth a conversation, but bottom line, I say you got to mix it up with some other ways to bring, bring that, you know, revenue in for unrestricted and operating in salaries. Yeah, I, I, you're right. And I think it depends on the who is right giving you the grant, like where the source of the grant is, because sometimes they may say they don't want to pay for salaries, but that's because the budget that you just gave them has a line for salaries on it. Um, and, and, and then you're getting a reaction to what you've provided to them and not necessarily to what they're asking for. Um, so if it's, a, if it's like one of those grants where they're very clear on the front end that we don't pay for salaries and then they've given you a budget template that you have to write everything in specifically, then you might just be, you know, I think, yeah, looking for funding elsewhere is required. Um, if, if you're shooting yourself in the foot by sending them a smaller copy of your own budget, which you haven't tailored to them, um, you, you could just be doing the damage yourself and they could be looking at it and going I, you know, I don't really feel comfortable paying for whatever, you know, you just, you took your annual budget, you divided it by 10, and you're giving us 10% of it. Like, that's not meaningful to me. I don't want, and, and the answer you get is we don't do salaries or whatever. We don't pay for sewer bills or whatever. Um, so the strategy usually then, if you've got some control over that, is to, to make sure that you're putting those funding requests in, in programmatic baskets um, that are meaningful. So if, you're, if your organization is doing something about education, um, you should know really, really well like how much it costs to deliver a single unit of service of education to whatever the population. Um, if we always joke like the, it's it's easy in some cases, it's hard in other cases. If you're saving butterfly species in the Amazon, <laughs> you know, like the it may take you know six million dollars to save one butterfly species. Um, but but that should be the unit that you're talking about with the donor, and not getting into the granular details because they don't. They shouldn't necessarily care about how you get the work done if you're getting the work done in an efficient and effective manner. They shouldn't. You know, can you elaborate, Andy, because I think at least a lot of organizations I've talked to struggle with how they come up with that unit and that cost per unit, how indirect costs play into that. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, first you hire me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm really expensive. No, the, the easiest way is to just take your budget um, make sure that you've got it broken down into programs that make sense. So if you're doing three or four different things, make sure that you, you can easily divide your budget into three and four pieces that you would say, if we were to kill this program off, um, that's the sort of the thought experiment. If we were to kill this program off, what would we lose? Like we wouldn't need this stuff. We wouldn't need this stuff. We wouldn't need a smaller building. We, right. And then just make sure you've, you've got a really interest. You, you're, you're careful about how you're dividing that. So if you've got an executive director and you've got four programs, there's a fair chance that the executive director's time is evenly divided by those four programs. Now, if you're an auditor and you're listening to this and your head just exploded, just be cool for a second because I'm not, what I'm not saying is like that all funding goes to program costs, that there's still fundraising involved. There's still administration involved. You need to account for that separately, but the fundraising and administration, like as you do your thought experiment is required to 
make that program work. Absolutely. So if you've got four programs and, you know, some take more time, some take less time, make sure that you figured out who's working on what, like what percentage of the building is being used for what programs, and then use that. So if you've got, if your output is, you know, you do a thousand students and through this program and this program costs, you know, a million dollars, each student is whatever a million divided by a thousand is, right? <laughs> I love, I love this. It's too, it's early morning and we can't do the math. Right I never now, do math. But, I don't yeah. do math in my head. That's no, it. no. Well, and what I love about what you're saying also is because I see too many people fall in the trap with grants that they're thinking of specific, they're not thinking of overhead. Like how do you deliver your program right without having an office space that, you know, maybe you do whatever that, I mean, how do you do it without some of the technology? And so I think what's happening is people are really shortchanging themselves when they put together these budgets because they're looking at direct in their mind, what are direct program costs? Like, okay, you know, here's the basket with the food that we're giving to, you know, this person. And, oh, so those are those costs instead of all the things that went into that. Um, so I love the idea of, of really looking at the big picture and sort of figuring out what your true cost is. Yeah. And it's, I mean, like for-profit businesses have been doing it for infinity years. They call it cost accounting. And they there's generally somebody who's paid to keep track of all that, that kind of stuff so that they know exactly what what inputs going in to, to whatever output is so that they can figure out what their profit margin is properly. So it's not, it's not something specific to nonprofits. It's something that everybody should do. Um, if you have somebody on your board that thinks they're a smart business person, lean on that person to get them to, to help you with that too. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, don't shoot yourself in the foot. I think if, if I could, you know, if, if there's a <laughs> summary, yeah. right, don't shoot yourself in the foot and provide something that allows somebody to tell you no. Absolutely. If, if you're given the opportunity to craft that grant proposal yourself, like do it in the best light. Don't, don't dump a spreadsheet on them when you know they're not really looking for a spreadsheet. Absolutely. I am on the board of a newly formed nonprofit and wondering if it is acceptable for our board chair and executive director to be the same person. Can you shed some light on this? Oh, yeah. So there's the sort of legal, the legal piece of this and the kind of ethical, moral, what what is the other side of this? So legally, in a lot of states, including Nevada, right, you can have that person, that position can be the same. So you can have a paid executive director and the volunteer, be also the volunteer board chair. Um, I just say, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, and run for the hills. I mean, there's so much, and I know it's hard, right? So I want to take a step back here. You're, you're, you're new, you're starting out a nonprofit, whatever. You don't have a lot of resources and probably people at your fingertips to do it. So it's easy to fall into that trap of, oh, well, I'm the one who founded this, or I'm the one who really helped get this off the ground, so why don't I be board chair? Oh, and, okay, I can also be, you know, executive director. So you think part of the question is also, like, is it a paid executive director? Um, you still, though, where you know, because obviously when you have a paid, in general, the rule of thumb is a paid executive director or paid staff person should be a non-voting board member if they're going to be on the board at all, right? Some people don't even have them on the board. But there's too much there's too much room for conflict of interest with all of this. So, you know, if you're the board chair leading the governance and fiduciary well-being of the organization, and you're also a paid executive director, you can see very quickly why, you know, everything from budget allocation to staff cuts to evaluation of the executive director, it all becomes a big ball of, you know, 
wax. It's it's messy, right? It's yeah. super messy if you do that. So, and I know small organizations sometimes they easily fall into that. I would just say do whatever you can to have sort of your paid staff be your paid staff. If they're going to have a seat on the board, they can have a non-voting seat on the board, but they're certainly not a board officer or board chair. Yeah. What are your thoughts? I think you're exactly right. The there is a little bit of confusion sometimes when you're so when you're forming a nonprofit, especially in Nevada, you go to the Secretary of State site and you have to type in um, who your board members are. You have to do it once a year, and the titles they use for those are very specific. There's there's president and there's secretary and there's treasurer and then there's director, and that gets confusing because the board chair is typically not called the president, and sometimes the bylaws may have different words for different things. I know there are organizations in town where the the chief executive the executive director right. has the oh, title president. CEO and right. president, right? Yeah. Which means that, I mean, it's just words. It doesn't mean anything. And it's it's whatever it's set up as in your bylaws. But if your title includes the word president, that doesn't mean that you're in charge of running the board, right? That Even though that's technically probably what that word was supposed to mean. Yeah. So so I can see where people get really kind of crossed up on like what what what's supposed to work. I think the bylaws are the right place to have all of that spelled out about what the different titles mean and who's responsible for what. And even specifically, like the chief executive officer is a non-voting member of the board. That should, exactly. That's probably something that should be in your bylaws. Our agency has grown large enough that our board has decided it's time for an audit. We are putting this out to bid right now and are wondering if you have any pointers on how best to prepare for an audit. Are there things we can do to make the process easier, streamlined, and quite frankly, less painful? Mm. For, well, for your first audit, um, hopefully your auditors are going to be nice to you because this they should recognize that this is the first time that you've ever done it. So they should come in with like, a, like let's help you. Because um, an audit, um, on one hand, what an audit is about, officially about, is it, it is... Um, third party coming in to look at what you've done and then say that they understand it and that what you've presented is correct or not correct necessarily, but they've looked at it and that they don't see anything horribly wrong with it. It's basically right. all they're saying. They're not there to do the work. They're there to say that what you've done is, is good enough. Um, because it's your first audit, um, they may ask you for things that you do not have. Like there's stuff that they might want you to keep track of, um, specifically if um, sometimes pledges get out of hand. Like some will say, I'll give you, you know, I'll give you $30,000 over four years. And then they send you $20,000 the first year and then you're confused. And then, so, so you may not have perfect record keeping on all the kinds of things that you may need to reach back out to donors to ask them. Like, so when you gave me that, you know, cause the last thing you want to do is call your donor and go like, I don't understand yeah, yeah. what you're Yikes. doing. Yeah. <laughs> right? Never good. Never so, good. But sometimes the, the finance person is going to make you do that because they're like, look, it said 30,000 over three years. They gave us 20,000 already. Are they giving us 5,000 each year for right. the next two years? Are they going to give us 10,000 next year? We get to ask them again. You have to find out. And the, the yeah. you know, fundraising person is like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> right. So right. so there yeah. may be stuff that you don't have that you're going to need to keep track of. Now, do you get dinged for that? Like on an audit, does that does that reflect negatively in the audit findings if you don't have it? So so there's a couple of levels of findings. So um, most most of the time, if if you're conscientious and you've done your work and and you're actually paying attention and you know how everything's supposed to go. Your audit's going to be a clean audit, which means that there aren't any major problems with it. Okay. Um, when you start to have major problems is when you start to get findings. And that's when the auditors will put in your, your audit. It'll say, 
you know, everything looks good except for this one thing, which could grossly misstate everything. Oh, right? um, that's that's going to be rare. So if you're doing your work and you're you're like actually serious about it, and you're do, you know if you're gotten to the point where you need to get an audit and you're getting one because you're growing into it, um, right. you're probably okay. Okay. Um, and your auditor will help you too. Um, if you've got a good auditor, your auditor will help you say, okay, this these are the kinds of things that you need to know. Because I'm even thinking with small organizations, I'm sure auditors are always looking at internal controls. And mm-hmm. how does that play out, right, in a small organization? And some small organizations may not have those internal controls. Yeah. So, so again, because it's the first audit, none of that's really going to be a big deal. Right. They are going to talk to you know. about internal controls. And they're going to say, okay, so what you've got now is, like, people are mailing you money. And the person that's opening the envelopes is the same person that's putting it into the accounting system. It's also the same person that's taking it into the bank. So because that person is the same person all the way across the board – there's an opportunity for them to lie about what came in the envelope yeah. or to change a check or to do something and put part of the money in their pocket because there's no one else to see that they did it. So they're going to try to get you to include more people in the process and, you know, those kinds of things. And you should be thinking about those kinds of things already, but the auditors are going to be really good at telling you, you know, this part needs to be fixed. So so the, the thing that you're going to, for year two, which is when you're really, like, this is when it's serious. So after the first audit, the first audit's like a, a pretend audit. You know, it's going to be good unless you're a mess. If you're a nightmare, <laughs> yeah. if it's a nightmare and they walk in and it's like, you haven't kept track of anything, you're not going to get a good audit. Yeah. But if you're conscientious, you're going to be okay. What they're going to give you is something called the management letter. So the management letter is something that isn't like when someone asks for your audit, you don't have to give them that part. That part only goes to the board and the staff can, can see it too. And it's the things that the auditor said that like, these aren't, these aren't a big enough deal for us to have an official finding on the audit, but it's stuff you need to fix before we come back next year or there's going to be a finding, right? And that's where that internal controls thing might come into play. They might say, you know, you need to have two people open the mail. We're not going to ding you on it this year, but if it's the same next year, you're going to have a problem. Yeah. And so that's when you make sure that everything in that management letter is absolutely and completely taken care of before audit number two. So I'm still sort of reeling over the fact, I guess I didn't realize this. So if someone says, may I see your audit or a funder, right? In a grant application says, please send us your audited financials. Are you saying that really it's just the management letter that someone needs to send? No, the management letters you don't send. That's, oh, you that's, don't say, oh, yeah, that's the thing you that's don't send. But you management can, only. Okay. So, so but yeah. you can send, you send the audited financials, but you keep the management letter for yourselves. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, yeah, I wouldn't okay. send the management because the management letter really is the auditor saying like, here's the stuff we noticed while we were here that you should right. probably take a look at, you know, okay. and, and some awful, awful funders will ask for the management letter. There Ugh. is a large funder in Las Vegas. They're, they're no longer doing this, but they used to always ask for the management letter. Oh, boy. And um, the, com- the firm that I was with at the time declined to participate in that grant because we were like, look, you're, you're crossing a line. Yeah. Like, that's for our internal information yeah. for things that we need to fix. It has nothing to do with you. And basically, you're just looking for a reason to tell us no anyway. So <laughs> take your money and yeah, goodbye. Know, give it to some other yeah. poor sap. <laughs> <laughs> But so, so to help answer the question, though, so what do you need to do to prepare for your audit is to make sure that um, you've, you've kept track of everything, that all your files are kind of in order, that you know where everything is. Um, think of all of the things and, and have the audit. They're going to send you before the audit starts. They're going to send you a list. And the list will say, these are the kinds of things that I'm going to need to look at while I'm there. Make sure that you know what all of them are. You know where they are. Um, if there's like a, an e-soft copy, like if it's in Excel or something like that, make that available, create PDFs, and like kind of collect all of that stuff before the auditor starts so that when they get there, they can just sort of hit the ground running and go. Um, because what, what 
the best thing that you can do to prepare for your audit is to keep it as inexpensive as possible. And the longer that they're in your building looking at stuff, the more it costs you. Mm. So, so you want to get as much of it like ready for them so that they can just burn right through it. You know, make sure all the files are in alphabetical order, like just like make it easy for them. Yeah. 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 Make it super, super easy for them. They'll be in and out. You'll get a clean audit and then you'll be worried about year two. We are engaging in our first ever strategic planning process in the next few months, and I have been reading up on what makes a plan effective. Different materials are showing different definitions of mission and vision, and I am now a bit perplexed as to what the difference actually is. Help. Oh, I love this question because people get so confused with this, and it it actually, when you get it, it makes a lot of sense, right? So your mission, right, is why you exist. So it answers that question, why do we exist? Why does our organization exist? In a nutshell, that's what a mission is. Vision is, is forward thinking, right? What is your desired end state? If you are successful fulfilling your mission, what does that future state look like? Um, I think one of the visions I always use, and um, I probably am don't have the words exact. So if anyone from this organization is listening, don't, don't kill me. But I think three square had a vision at one point that was just like a community where nobody goes hungry. So that was the end state, right? That was the end result. If they are successful, you know, achieving their mission, um, you know, of distributing food and placing food and doing all of that great stuff, then the vision is nobody is going to be hungry in our community. So I think it's really about trying to get to that. It is hard to get people to think like that because people tend to, especially when you get in strategic planning sessions, they they want to get into the sort of the meat of, oh, like, what are we doing? Like, they want, like, verbs in it. And I'm like, no, 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 no verbs. So the, ans- <laughs> the rule of thumb is no verbs, just a, a desired end state, right? A community that, a, you know, household that, whatever, you know, whatever it is, but it's something that yeah. is the end state. Yeah. It's, and it's funny how so many missions and visions stick. Yes. Like they were originally thought of because they needed to be thrown on the 1023. You're, you're right. creating your 1023. Oh no, we need a mission. Like, okay, just put that on there. And they use like, I don't know, like the internet mission statement oh, yeah. generator or something like that. Oh, and yeah. it's like, it has to include like the region that it's in and like all this technical detail about how it's going to work. And it's really not, no, nope, you don't need to do no. that. And then the, the challenge that I, come up with organizations when we're talking about vision a lot too, is that sometimes their vision and their mission aren't aligned. So when you go through the process of figuring out what your vision is, so what's the desired end state? And then you look at what we're actually doing. It's like, then there's this cognitive dissonance about, wait a minute. Yeah. Like if we do our mission really well, that's actually not the end state we're going to get. We're going to get something different like that's, or there's, there's 12 other organizations in the, in the chain that need to work together. So, so three square, for example, is good. It's about ending hunger, like ending hunger in a community. That's great. And the way they're going to do that is by provide, making food available to people, right? right? right. Um, The deeper you dig into that, you find out like, well, what's the root cause of that? Like, why are people hungry? And people are hungry for lots of different reasons. And three square is not tackling any of those, right? So, so like, is the vision, like, does the mission have to completely encompass what the vision says, or is it okay to just be able to do just a piece of it? Yeah. And I mean, I think that's something, right? Organizations have to wrestle with. It's a really good point. Um, And sometimes you see these really, I think vision people also struggle with, they, it can be so lofty that it is, you know, like they're an organization based in, 
you know, northern Nevada, for example, and yet they're saying they're going to change something for the world. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, I mean, like, I I don't think that's really going to happen. Right. So I think there's this sort of also gut check of, yeah, we want something super aspirational. We want something that's hard to reach because it's very far in the future. And yet it's not completely implausible. And I think people struggle with that, too. That's it. You did it. You successfully got to the end of another episode of Nonprofit Everything. For Stacey Wedding, I'm Andy Schurecht. We will see you in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.